Hey guys, good morning. This is so sweet for me because you guys, oh yeah, yeah, no, you're good. I got her. I got you, babe. Um, so my name is Alvaro Briones. Um, and this is so sweet for me because I see so many faces here and the word that comes to mind is faithfulness and family. That's who I'm here with today. I like, usually I'm really nervous. I really don't feel that this morning because you guys are just, this is just sweet, you know? Um, but to reintroduce myself, I'm 28. Um, uh, James asked me to preach this morning. My beautiful wife's with me. Um, her name's Malaya. She's also 28. I don't know why you guys know that. Um, she's a doctor, so by osmosis, I'm not one. I just know one. Uh, so cool things there. I do feel I am in the Kaya ministry. I'm more ya than ka. Like I'm getting to the ah, which is just adult. You know, there's nothing young anymore about us, about me at least. Uh, and so that's, yeah, that's where we're going. Uh, but yeah, thank you, James. Thank you for inviting me this morning. Uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 53, which is, you know, it's funny. Uh, James asked me to preach over this. And he said, you know, can you preach over a, a Mesquil Psalm? I didn't even know it's called Mesquil. I thought it was Mesquil. Um, and, you know, it sounds like one of those buzzwords like, oh, yeah, yeah, Michelle, I know what that is. I didn't know. I didn't know what a Michelle psalm was <laughs> until I said it out. But uh, a Michelle psalm is a psalm of instruction. It's a, and you guys have probably already covered some people up here explaining this, but just as a form of introduction, it, a Michelle psalm is to give instruction. It's a con contemplative psalm. And so this morning, as we start out, I'm, we're going to read what the word says, and then we'll get right into it after some prayer. Sound good with you guys? All right. So Psalm 53, um, verse 1. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat my people up as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Let's pray. Um, Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your word, Lord. Um, I pray that as we enter into your word, Lord, that you'd be with us, that you would open the eyes of our understanding to your scripture, and that, God, that today um, you'd help us make decisions as, as a fellowship, Lord, uh, as a people, um, to move forward in faith in whatever area the word pricks us this morning. Uh, Lord, push me aside, and I just pray that your word will speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so happy psalm, sleepy psalm Sunday, right? It's exciting, but this psalm is a, it's a serious psalm. It's a good psalm, and I'll explain why. This psalm actually is the second time it shows up in the book of Psalms. So Psalm 14 is very much alike to Psalm 53. There's like a, a one-verse difference. And then you see the psalm is also used in the New Testament as a proof of, of man's sin in this world. So this psalm is like important. It shows up in the New Testament, in Psalm 14, and now we're reading it here. So the first thing that we see is that there's a person, right? There's a fool. There's people, th these people, the fool, 
takes a stance that for them, there is no God. You guys see that in the first verse? We can read it again. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. You know, I remember when I was younger, like kid younger, I thought that, um, um, I, I thought that if you got all the smart people in the same room, they would all agree. Because to me, knowledge was the pinnacle. That if you got, if you were to get more understanding, more knowledge set, if your bucket was deeper, then you'd understand the world better. Now I work in corporate America, and that is not true at all. <laughs> not one bit. And it's because of our hearts, right? We ha all have hearts desires that actually influence the way we think. And it blew my mind when the Bible showed me this, that foolishness doesn't re directly relate to intelligence or the lack thereof. Uh, we always want to characterize a fool as someone who does something stupid, but there's more layers to that. Um, and so we're going to learn two things from this passage today. First, the foolish do not know, nor do they understand God. And the second thing we're going to learn is the judgment God has for them that do not know. So who is a fool? Who is a fool? If you look at your Strong's Concordance, a fool is called someone that's stupid, wicked, an impious person, a foolish man, foolish woman, a vile person. And the word study on the word fool shows us many things that a fool does. So we're going to cover a little bit of that section. A fool in this passage has thoughts. <laughs> they have their opinion. They say there is no God. In Psalm 92.6, a fool does not understand the works of God. So that's interesting. Foolishness is contrasted with against righteousness. Um, there's a story in 2 Samuel 13. This is such a sad story, but this man's called a fool because he tries to sleep with his sister and then he gets himself killed. Man, what a fool, right? What, what a wicked thing compared to righteousness. You also see that it's not only related against righteousness, but it's also related against wisdom. In 2 Samuel 3.33, Abner and this Abner's dude, he's a G. He's a captain of the military, a mighty strategist, a high-ranking official. You know, towards the end of his life, he makes peace with David. And once he's walking away, Joab, who's been his enemy, <laughs> comes towards him and wants to talk to him. Like, your arch nemesis wants to talk. He, he, and he, he's just armed, unarmed. And then Joab just stabs him under the fifth rib. Man, and you know what David says when he finds Abner? He says, did Abner die as a fool? Wow, right? This mighty man just had a foolish moment. Then we see people are foolish with their emotions. So in Job 2.10, and you guys might be familiar with the story of Job, but he's going through his trials, right? And Job calls his wife foolish because she asked him to give up his integrity and curse God in the heat of emotions. So you can see foolishness has to do with your emotions. Then we also see that there's effects of foolishness in the Bible. Proverbs 17.21 says, he that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Man, the father of foolish men are sad. And, th and that's sad in a spiritual sense, in a physical sense. You know, when your kids go a, a, a different way than the, they were taught, or in discipleship, when you, you know the person knows better and they still go their own way. It's a hard thing, right? It brings people sorrow. It affects others. Another effect of foolishness is short-sightedness. A lot of references to the fool, and this is interesting for us to study out some other time, but it's, it's made in relation to their pocketbooks, to money, and their short-sightedness with it. Luke 12, 16 through 21 says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man 
brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, this passage teaches us that this man was not stupid. He, he had a lot, right? So either he got a lot by inheritance and then he maintained it, which is still wise, or he worked his butt off. He was a hardworking dude, 40 years grinding it out in the same company. I don't know. But the foolish part was not that. The foolish part was that regardless of this, it was foolish for him to put his trust in his riches than use his riches towards the Lord. You guys see that? That was a foolishness. Man, and I think it's pretty clear out of all these examples to point out foolishness. You know, you guys, you know, we see it all the time. It's like, that was not smart. <laughs> or uh, there's a song that's, uh, I pity the fool. You know, like we all know what foolishness looks like, but I think it's harder to understand where it comes from, right? We sometimes it's the fool never at the end of his decision says, oh, I wanted to make that foolish decision. I wanted those results. We never start there. So the Bible tells us where foolishness starts from too. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Man, see what this passage is saying is that the fool does not care for the things that make sense. That is not in his peer view. He is not thinking about that. The fool only cares about what they can get, right? The fool puts his endeavor in letting his heart reveal itself to permeate his life, to say, I'm going to give my heart's desire to myself. and the Bible's got a little bit of an issue with this, right? Because we understand the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so this is the natural progression of anything that comes out of the fool's heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, why? Because he knows that his heart is contrary to God's heart. Right? It's easier to say there is no God than to serve him. You guys get that? Wow, the fool is preoccupied with getting for themselves what they want and opening their hearts up to vanity. And then, and then in that moment, they become foolish, stupid to their own reality. You know, foolishness is a hard issue that we all have, unfortunately. And that's why it has to progressively be dealt with. So here's the first key point. The beginning of foolishness is deciding in our hearts that its desires are greater than God's. The beginning of foolishness is deciding in our hearts that its desires are greater than God's. Proverbs 9, 7 states that the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. You know, the fool would say, the beginning of my happiness is fulfilling my heart's desire. If the fool, if the fool had a handbook, you know. The, that's Proverbs 9, 7 says, the, fool, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. See, my idea of these men that if you get enough knowledge, you become the savvy, good person. That's not right because the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. It's not how much knowledge you have. You know, so when we do things without consideration of the statement, we get ourselves into pickle. And I want to share a pickle in my life. Because uh, this, I mean, it, it happens. So uh, Malay and I were looking for a house and, and I, I want to preface this story with God's gracious. And I don't want to sound like I'm 
you know, bringing our home down. I love our home, honey. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we're, it was, it was the middle of the house crisis. I'll call it house crisis because it was a crisis for us. But we're looking for a home, right? We've been renting for a while. Um, and houses were just going like 50K over asking. And, you know, uh, Pastor Sam's going through the uh, series of law in Genesis 14. And he brings up how we're not supposed to follow the way of, of the world. And so we prayed about it. and like, Lord, we're asking specifically for a house off the market. And we're like begging God. This is the biggest purchase I plan to ever make in our life, you know. And, and so we're begging God. And God answered that prayer. The, the guy changed his heart. We moved into the house we were renting. And we're just like, yeah. Like, it was such a big win, right? And then we get to work. Then we paint the house on the outside, the inside. You guys know how it goes, right? We, we trip over the carpet. We see that there's hardwood floors. So, you know. Just we became uh, fixer upper, Chip, Chip and Joanne Gaines over here, um, and so we do all this fixing and and I'm not uh, I'm not justifying this okay so bear with me, but it came to a point where I was tired of doing these things and then the next project was windows, all right so and I'm like you know what uh, I'll chip in some money whatever we'll do, we'll have someone else do the windows, and so we get to this point it's Thursday and uh, you know the the salesman was coming out. So I'm like, okay, I'll take a lunch break. We're there for three hours. And, you know, these windows are state-of-the-art, could detect, I don't know, whatever. They're just, the guy comes in with the window, like a physical window and like a heat lamp and everything. And we find out he's a Christian. So then we, we share testimonies, right? Uh, and so three hours later, I'm like, I just got to make up my mind here because I, I got to get back to work. Um, so then we said a two-minute prayer and, and then we said, okay, fine, we'll sign. Uh, and this was a big financial decision, like thousands and thousands of thousands of dollars. Um, the next morning, I'm reading in Jeremiah 2, and it says, there's no fear of the Lord in them. I just remember that passage. And I was like, huh, interesting. Cool. Thanks, Lord. You know, <laughs> get on about my day. And then Sunday, they talk about how there's wisdom in the multitude of councils. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what this is about, you know. <laughs> you guys are, yeah, cool, right? And so then I then. God had to hit me again on my way out. This guy also got new windows and he told me he got the same quality of windows for third of the price. And I, and I realized I'm like, Oh no, you know? And so then I do the math. I'm praying about it all night. And I remember that night I was like, I, I made a decision without the Lord. Dude. And Malaya remembers that like I'm with my monitors. I'm like crunching numbers. And I turn her. I'm like, I'm sorry. I led you astray. It was such a hard moment and it was a humbling moment because God showed me that any decision without him is going to be foolish, man. So we got to take heed to that because it leads you to a place where there is no God for you. Practically, there's no God there for me, right? I threw him a bone, a two minute word and said, please bless this man. Fool. Now let's look at God's perspective. So if, if God could, give us a perspective it, it changed from that there is no god to there's no fear of god before them and actually where this passage is quoted in romans 3 the passage ends with that section with this verse romans 3 18 there's no fear of god before their eyes see the full set tells themselves this to justify their actions to de temporary discovering of their heart or immediate satisfaction and because there is no fear of the lord and in, in the fool men naturally turn to corruption that's where it always starts. That's where it always ends. They, they're decayed and their corruptness leads them to iniquity. And like Job says, you know, man drinks iniquity like water. 
See, in this verse, the psalmist is showing us that apart from the Lord, apart from believing on who he is, we are corrupt. And our practical application should be that we should fear the Lord in our decision making. Right. But I just want to sort of reframe this passage that mostly we're going to be talking about the lost man moving forward. And so just keep that in your mind. So verses two through three, uh, and we'll read verse one since we didn't get to the end. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There's none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. See, the Bible records God looked three times in all of scripture. What an eerie thing, right? I just like shake a little bit, like God looked. Um, and you see the first mention is Genesis 6. If God's going to look anywhere, Genesis 6. Um, in verse 12, it says, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. You know, when God looks in Genesis 6, all man is doing whatever the imagination of the heart is telling them to do. It's a wicked time. People are against the Lord. God looked. When we fast forward in time and we look at the bondage of Israel after Joseph in Exodus 22, 23, 25, it says this. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried. And their cry came up unto God by the reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. So the second mention is actually God's mercy bestowed on his children. He's seeing their bondage. He hears their cries, right? But again, it's in the time of corruption. It's in the time where they're being enslaved by this nation. So in both of these examples, we see wickedness and hurt. And, and the creme on the cherry on top is Psalm 53, verse 2, where God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. And what does God find? It's verse 3, that all of them have gone back. All of them have gone back, and there's none good. So what we see here is that God's from heaven, from his throne. He's looking down, and he cannot find a single man or woman that naturally seek him. If you, do a, if you do a phrase study on that word, um, on that phrase, seek God, you'll notice that every mention is always a response to God first moving. Second Chronicles 19.3, you see Jehoshaphat actually is mentioned of him that he seeks God while he's getting judged by God. <laughs> you know, in Second Chronicles 30.19, the Passover feast is happening and the Levites are saying God will forgive anyone that prepares his heart to seek God again a place of forgiveness because God's already judged them. So God always seeks first. And we see this principle in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God loved us. That's the love part. It's not that we loved God. That's not love. God loved us. That's love. Man, that's that's amazing. So we see that God always makes the first move. And at this point, he made plenty of attempts for Israel. So here's a key point too. No man seeks God naturally, so we must seek men. No man seeks God naturally, so we must seek man. And I don't know about you guys, but man, I can become inundated um, with, with man not seeking God. 
like going to work, going to the grocery store, going anywhere. I just forget that no one's seeking him, <laughs> you know? Like we talk about the love of God in here, like this is such a loving room. But when you go out into the world, there's no one seeking him. Um, we've been, I've been reading this book in LFBI. You guys should read it. It's uh, called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Some of you guys probably have read it, but it's an evangelism book. And that's the one thing you can't do in heaven is evangelize. But uh, yeah, it's good. It's a great book. Uh, but he mentions that some believers want to think that because, you know, their behavior changes because of the gospel, that somehow the lost man should cling unto that, right? But the author points out that that plan only works if you're 100% walking in the spirit your whole, your whole life, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and often we fail. So we shouldn't put our faith in just what people see in us, but in the message of the gospel also. It has to be a balance. It has to be a balance. You know, I'm indebted to this church because that's my testimony. I didn't come in here. I, the, the first time I ever stepped into church was for Malaya. <laughs> and that was when I was 16. That's not an awe moment. I was a dog. <laughs> but, but, and I was lost. But you see what I'm saying? I, didn't, I wasn't seeking God. But, I mean, even this church has taught me how to seek God. Even as a believer, we're taught how to seek God because it's very unnatural to us. Let, let's look at some scripture about how we should be seeking man. First Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So this verse is saying is that we should all be, always be ready, right? But why? It's because you don't know when they're going to ask. You don't know when they're inspecting your life. But first, we must re be ready to give an answer once they ask but who is going to lead them to the right questions, right? There, no one's ever come up to be, me and been like, tell me, tell me exactly what Christianity is. There's always been a conversation prefacing that. And we see this in scripture, Acts 8, 30 and 31. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip, that he would come up and sit with him. So in the story, you have Philip, the man of God, a safe man, going to this chariot who has a lost man, right? And what does the lost man say? Oh, Philip, you ran so fast. You must be the man of God. No, he says, he says who, who's the one that initiates a conversation? Philip, right? Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? The safe man talks to the lost man first, and then the lost man has space to respond. Oh, yeah, I don't understand, except some man should guide me. Oh, would you please help me? Man, so you see how the safe man goes to the lost man first. Let's look at Paul with the jailer who is going to commit suicide. Acts 16, 27 to 30. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, man, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Man, in this situation, the, the jailer wasn't just ready to hear the gospel. And Paul wasn't just memorizing verses in his jail cell. He might've been doing that. And that's what we should be doing. But Paul, the moment he left that jail cell, he saw this man in distress. Imagine yourself in that position. If, if I was leaving jail, like escaping, 
I would not turn to my jailer, right? But Paul sought his persecutor. Do you guys catch that in the verse? It says, but Paul, but Paul, but Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm. A saved man reached out to a lost man again, because naturally the lost man won't seek out God. Man, praise God that he did, right? He saved his life physically and eternally that day. Man, praise the Lord. Now that we've seen that no man seeks God, let's look at how no man is clean before God. Verse 3, every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You know that phrase, every one of them has gone back. It's, just, it's also translated to just one word, which is backslider. I thought that was interesting. And the only mention of that word backslider is Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. So you see, this reaffirms our point that the backslider, it's a heart issue, but they just fill themselves with their own way, right? That's what God's finding, is that his people group is just going to fill themselves with their own way, and that way is wickedness. But the good man, he's satisfied, he's content. In Matthew Henry's commentary of this, he says the following, as sinners never think they have sin enough till it brings them to hell, so saints never think they have grace enough till it brings them to heaven. Man, that's something to consider, right? Like the lost man never will tell you, oh yeah, that's enough. I'm, I'm going down there, <laughs> right? But what we see is that man is wicked. They'll just keep doing wicked things. And so the conclusion is that we're all filthy. We've all sinned. So it's not only that no man seeks God, but no man seeks God because all men are filthy before him. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags and we all do fade us to leave and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Key point three, no man is clean before his sight. We need Jesus. No man is clean before his sight. We need Jesus. You know, this verse is teaching us that we're all unclean. Even our good deeds are viewed as filthy rags. And sometimes I read verses like this and I can get uh, angsty, you know, because I, I value my good works. That's just who I am in the flesh. Um, and most people who are lost will see that. They'll say, well, I've done something right. I did something good today. I came to church. Like you invited me. Okay. I came <laughs> like, like we get defensive about that, but I think it's because we don't understand our total nature and, and that nature is a nature that's fallen. And so let's go to the New Testament on why God really drills down on man for this topic. So the context of the passage we're about to read is Romans 3.6, and it's actually the judgment of the world. Uh, in Romans 3.6, it says, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world, right? And in this passage, the wicked is saying, hey, if God looks good when I do evil, let me just keep doing more evil so he looks more good. <sighs> A little twisted, right? But that's where man's at. And so God... God says this, and, and here's the totality of it. It's a longer passage. Uh, what then, Romans 3, 9 through 21, are we better than they? No, and no wise. For he have both proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used to see. The poison of asp is under their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. In the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The playing field is leveled through the law. That's why God is showing that this, us this morning. Is that the, 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 no matter if you're Jew, Gentile, where you're coming from, that playing field, it's leveled. We're, we're all found guilty before the law. We're all found guilty before the Lord. And, and man, it's, it's crazy because this forces man, this forces humanity to trust something besides themselves. If I'm found guilty, if everything in me is just what this ver these verses are saying, then it forces me to look somewhere else but me. Even the world gets this. In the Alcoholic Anonymous book, it says that you should believe in a higher power. And their justification is because you got yourself in that position. <laughs> Even the lost man says, hey, hey, buddy, you did wrong, so you, you should try something else, you know? And how much better, though, that what? The, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. That's what we have, right? We don't just have some higher power, but the righteousness of God is manifested. What is that righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are made the righteousness of God in him, in him being only Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Like today you walked in here and sleepy, good, bad, but you were made the righteousness of God when you accepted Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done this morning, the option is there. If you agree with the verses we read, then, then you must agree there has to be a different way than just you. In that way, what the Bible declares is Jesus Christ. Through him, his payment of all that sin, through all that wickedness, he can make you righteous before God. It's an awesome thing, guys. It's an awesome thing. And let's keep going because it just keeps getting better. So then we, now this section, I'll title it, The Weakness of the Wicked. Verse 4 and 5. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread. They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear, or no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God has despised them. Man, so here we go. The, the turn, right? The, the turn in the passage, the last three verses. And what we're seeing here is the workers of iniquity. I won't... Uh, give you more happy messaging this morning, but if you do a word study on works, workers of iniquity, it ain't that happy. Um, and this is why God's asking that question. It's like, do they really not know? Man, do they really not know my character? Because if they knew my character, they would know judgment's coming. And there's verse after verse. I mean, Psalm 125.5, the Lord's going to judge them. The destruction comes to the workers of iniquity, Proverbs 21.25, and it continues on and on and on. But see, the worker of iniquity is still ignorant, and they don't, they don't want to repent. They go about boasting their strength, right? There is no God. But then when there's no fear, they still run. It's crazy. Proverbs, Psalms 36, 12, it says, There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. 
That's why God's asking that question of, do they really not know? And I think we can think about this with lost people too. You know, sometimes it's like, man, do you really not get it? But here's a key point. No man knows God's judgment, so we must love them. No man knows God's judgment, so we must love. You know, in the Old Testament, God would fight for his, people's, uh, for his people and against their enemies. And this verse speaks to that. David needed God's help, and he's crying out how the enemy just simply doesn't understand and for God to protect him. But in the New Testament, we're actually called to help those that do not understand God's judgment. That means our kids, that means family, that means coworkers. And you see this characterized in 2 Timothy 2.25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. See, verse 5, the wicked who were once denying God, those tough guys, right? There is no God. (laughs) Well, we need to help them because they don't see their own destruction coming. That's a hard reality. It says that God will scatter their bones. He disperses the enemy of God's people, and all they can do is flee. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You know, and they might not know the totality of their judgment, but they know there's something wrong. Because if they're running when no one's pursuing them immediately, they know they're in the wrong. That's why, that's why man runs. You know, I've had to... I've had to learn this um, as a supervisor because, you know, I, I became a supervisor in my, in my profession. And, uh, you know, for me, I was so idealistic. I'm like, I'm going to be the first Christian supervisor. Like, I'm going to glorify God with it. I'm going to be able to share the gospel and all these things. And, man, there's been times where I'm like, am I doing everything wrong? Because of their response towards me. They do, like, I, I love them. I don't think they love me, you know. And like the rules are in place with, you know, the job place and everything. We have to follow those. But there's been times where I'm like, am I doing everything wrong? And God's brought to my remembrance that they just don't know how to be loved. They don't know how to be cared for. And, and even if I follow biblical principles, that doesn't automatically mean results in their life that I can see. So that's just encouraging um, because they're, they're going to flee. They're going to flee when the righteousness arrives. And I'm always checking myself because I, I do do wrong things. I want to say that. So in situations where I'm like, okay, what's going on? Um, I do check myself to say, okay, you're an idiot. You should just apologize, right? Um, but let's consider someone who runs in the Bible. Um, let's consider Cain, Genesis 4. You know, Cain does not understand God's judgment, right? You see in the beginning that he brings an offering and God says, oh, yo, you get a second chance at this. This is, this is smelling bad. but he doesn't do that, right? And God has a judgment on him. And after that judgment, verse 13 says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this, mo- this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. You know, I just want to ask Cain, who? <laughs> Who's in the world right now? There's not a lot of people, right? But, but you see how scared he is? Like, even though he's the murderer, he's the one who killed his younger brother. He still is complaining to God about his fear. Wow. Cain, who's pursuing you, man? 
See, the issue with Cain was that he did not understand God's character. Not one bit. Isn't that sad that the last words Cain said to God were, I'm scared. I'm scared, Lord. It wasn't repentance. It wasn't, I'm sorry. I'm scared. And it makes me consider, nowhere in the Bible was it recorded that anyone chased down Cain. Isn't that that sad? He asked for something that never happened instead of asking for repentance in that moment. And that's that's what we do. Church, this passage is pushing us forward into seeing people in this manner and seeing people that don't have knowledge in whom they truly serve of how temporal their desires are. And, And so we must love them. You know, in confidence, we must be there for those that oppose themselves. You know, consider Jesus' words to those that do not have knowledge. Luke 23 through 34. Luke 23, 34. Uh, it says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Forgive them, why? For they know not what they do. They don't understand your plan of salvation. They don't understand your love. As he's getting beaten. Forgive them. They know not what they do. See, Jesus is asking to forgive the lost man. For they don't even know what they're doing in their own wickedness. Man. And here's the hope. The last verse. And you know, Psalms is so good because you can't look at a psalm by itself. You got to look at the previous psalm and the one right after. So in Psalm 55, it at 54, it goes to David's plea for his people. But here's where the turn really starts. It's in uh, verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. So here we have David asking, right, asking for that salvation of Israel. We understand doctrinally that this is in those last days. It's when Jesus comes back. But practically for us, we're we're seeing... um, that there's salvation for God's people when God's with them. You see this in Psalm 14. There's actually a little extra in Psalm 14 than there is in this passage. And it says this. Um, I think I have the full passage, but towards the end it says, because the Lord is his refuge. So see, David can call out to God because he knows God's for him. He, could, he knows God has his back. And we see that God is going to save his people. So we shouldn't be afraid of our enemies. That's what this passage is teaching us. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. And his children shall have a place of refuge. So here's a key point. The Lord is with us even when wickedness abounds. The Lord is with us even when wickedness abounds. And you know... um, a lot of times the lost world does get to us. I don't know about you guys, but every day after work, I'm like, this was a week. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that was eight hours. That was a week. Um, and, you know, you can just be wiped out by that, by, by their cursing, their lifestyles, their conversation. Um, and, you, and you really put your faith in this passage because you really see their hopelessness. You're like, man, no one really loves God. But I just want to encourage us this morning that um, this passage says that we shouldn't be worried about that. We shouldn't be worried about what they can do to us, n- nor carry the weight of their wrongdoing. And I think we can do that sometimes. I have a friend um, who goes to this church. He works with me. And this is a really encouraging testimony of, of um, how God was with him. 
But at his job, it's it's a union. We work together, but he works on the union side. And, you know, um, this is the culture, not the people, but the culture tells you don't work too hard, right? Because we're a union family. We got to we gotta not push the system here. Um, and so this guy is like, well, I got Colossians 3, and I want to work heartily unto the Lord. Well, he does this, and then he actually gets himself in a pickle where he caught his coworker doing something wrong, just sort of doing his job, not checking products, and he's an inspector. And so he, he brought this to his peer saying, hey, we can't do that. The peer said, whatever, <laughs> you know. And so then he brought this to his boss and the boss was like, well, if I let this be known, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make our team look bad. So they just wanted to sweep it under the rug. And so then my, our, my friend, um, he, he took it to the next level boss, the boss's boss. And then finally something happened. But from that interaction, uh, my friend his boss and his peer went to HR and threw him to third shift. And I was just like, I was livid when I was hearing this. I'm like, are you kidding me? You did the right thing. How, how did that happen? Now your family's impacted. Now ministry's impacted. He's actually probably going to work right now. Wait, he's coming out of work right now on third shift. And I'm like, that's crazy. And I'm getting more furious than he is. But he told me, he's like, Alvaro, I, I know one thing that through this trial, God's been with me. Because I, I did the right thing. I stuck with what he said. And that's, a, that's encouraging to me in this passage because sometimes, man, we, we don't see that. We don't see the salvation in the moment. But God's promise is, is that he will be with us through that trial. So in conclusion, we covered a lot. Oh, in Romans 8.28, to put the cherry on top. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So in conclusion, and that verse is really saying that, right? That no matter what happens in life, God's working things together for good. For good, even if that doesn't feel the way it does in the moment. So in conclusion, I want us to consider these takeaways. Um, maybe, you know, as we pray out, um, I don't know how you guys do it here, but as you talk amongst yourself, maybe to your you know, spouses, maybe just to the Lord in prayer, um, just Think on these things. Think about, you know, have I been foolish this week? Is there, is there ways to improve that? Um, is there ways I can trust the Lord to consider him in my decision-making? Um, consider the loss. Really consider the loss that, you know, the people you're talking to, they don't have an eternal perspective. Like, you know, every you know Mondays how they go, right? How was your weekend? Great, Jim. How was yours? You know, like, there's nothing eternal about conversations with the loss. They're always temporal. So, Remember that no man seeks God. Also remember that no man's clean before his sight. So let's be faithful to share the gospel. And then the fourth key point was that no man knows God. So let's just make sure we're sharing his character in our lives. And then through all that, let's just remind ourselves that the Lord is with us through all those things. And even in the hard times. Thank you, guys.